Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Jason Farr, and I have a great episode for you. Let's do this. Before we get into things, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, leave a review, and be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at There It Is Pod. Like There It Is Pod on Facebook, too. Today's episode is a talk I had with renowned improviser and instructor Jill Bernard. She co-founded the artist-led Huge Improv Theater in Minneapolis. This is arguably my favorite talk, but it's kind of hard to say because I love all of them. Either way, great episode. We get into some inspiring stuff. I think it's a great episode for improvisers or anyone interested in doing improv. It's all coming up right after this. Do you have theritis? I hope you do. It's just the best condition going around. It's just like arthritis, but instead of hurting your bones, it makes you feel good. If you want to support the podcast, please do. Be a part of the Theritis Foundation by going to thereitispod.com and supporting the podcast. You can give one time or monthly. It'll help me keep bringing you this podcast, which is the only known medicine for theritis. There is no cure. You can only contain theritis with more episodes of There It Is. Jill Bernard, thanks so much for being here. Hey, no problem. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about your background, about how you got into comedy. I know what you've done in the world of comedy, but um, when did you know you wanted to get into comedy? Am I in comedy? I didn't know that. Well, <laughs> it is, you know, that is something with you that uh, you, you're really a, an artist. I, I was always funny because... I mean, I'm the young. I'm the youngest of my family. I have two older brothers, and like we we were just always joking. My brother remembers the first joke I ever told. I was I was taking a bath, and we lived in Chicago. You have to know that part. <laughs> um, and I, I was taking a bath, and I sang, "Noel, Noel, the first CTA strike." Because the L is the name of the train there, and the CTA is the name of the company. And my brother was like, that's when I knew you were funny. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to be a performer, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I was always funny, so those two things kind of fell in together. Um, I was doing scripted acting in college, and a friend was in comedy sports and recommended I audition, so I did. And comedy mm. sports was my start in improv back in 1993. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that start, and you've done so much stuff with uh, comedy sports, like a lot of big things with, with comedy sports. You're in comedy sports uh, Twin Cities, and um, you're also you're on a world championship team for comedy sports, correct? Yeah, Minneapolis has won a couple. Of, I was on two winning teams for 
Minneapolis, although one of those is a famous tie. Um, a few years ago, we tied with Milwaukee for world championships, uh, which is the most comedy sports thing that could possibly happen to mm. have a world championship tie. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, is adorable, right? It is. What real sport would be like, okay. <laughs> you both can be I, world both champions. Both Pistons and the Bulls can be the champions. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so your aim originally when it came to entertaining and uh, perf- the performance art uh, was theatrically, and uh, then, as you said, you got into comedy uh, comedy sports. Uh, where was your mind at the time? I and mean, were you saying, uh, well, this is the avenue for me, or were you saying this is an additional thing I can do? Uh, wow, you're giving me a lot more direction in life than I possibly had at the time. Comedy sports just seemed really fun. Mm-hmm. Like it was just like this is a fun thing. This is where I belong. These are the best people I've ever met. I want to be with them forever. Uh, this is the most fun I've ever had. This is, and also in a lot of ways, like comedy sports felt like what I was built to do. Like oh, there's okay. a game of comedy sports called Five Things, where your team mimes to you and you guess. Mm-hmm. And that was the first game in my entire life I've ever been good at. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, finally, I'm okay at Scrabble. But look at this. There's a game I'm good at. <laughs> That's when I felt like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And at the time, there wasn't really a future in improv. Like, there wasn't a, a career path doing improv comedy Um it certainly was everybody's hobby. It wasn't a main focus for anyone except those of us who were just like poor and, you know, sharing (laughs) each other's couches. But, um, yeah, I just, I didn't want to do anything else. That's, uh, that's really, I think a fitting, I think that's really fitting, um, uh, for a lot of people's stories and, and having met you once and, and experienced what you're like, I can see, uh, that being a big monumental moment for you when you said, oh, these are my people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've accomplished, as I mentioned, you've accomplished a ton in improv, too much to, to rattle off. I mean, like a lot of stuff. Um, how, how did all of those opportunities come to you? Obviously, it's a lot, so I guess you can't name them all. But Well, no, if you traced it back, there's really three roots. Um, comedy sports opened a lot of doors because there's comedy sports locations in a bunch of cities mm-hmm. uh, and going to the world championships introduced me to people then the comedy the the, the Chicago Improv Festival which uh, at the time was one of the only improv festivals when I started going in the early 2000s um, at that festival I was introduced to lots of people who became contacts for me. Mm-hmm. And also Jonathan Pitts, the producer of the festival, mm-hmm. has always advocated for me and recommended me to people. That, I think, you can trace back to a lot of things. And at the same time, in 1999, there was a message board on the internet called yesand.com. And it was how people met each other. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. And improvisers were talking to each other 
and finding out what people were doing on the other side of the country and the other side of the world for the first time. Like there was no other contact. Uh, uh, before that, there'd been a couple of big improv festivals and people just kind of drove to them and hoped it would be cool. Like there was no way to check and see uh, or make plans. But yeah, how did people even get? Uh, uh, I mean, how would they? They would just submit a tape. They would send a VHS yeah. tape and just get a they letter back. A tape or yeah. Or they call you, you know, they call you on the phone. Uh, I got a couple calls. Yeah, I remember that when people would call. <laughs> oh, nice. You mail an envelope with a with a VHS tape in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you you ended up uh, traveling the world. And when yeah. did that start happening for you? I think it was 2007 I went to, well, Norway, and that was my first international, um, well, off-continent. I've been to Canada a bunch. Right. Yeah, you're right. Kind of right there. (laughs) My first big trip. And in a way, it was a trick because uh, the people I worked with were so good that I thought, oh, like, it doesn't matter if you speak the native language of the people. Like, you could just coach their improv anyway because they were wonderful. But it's been harder since then. It's really hard to coach people who are not performing in your language. Sometimes it works out. But, <laughs> uh, but that was uh, people I met through the Chicago Improv Festival who invited me to come to their city. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's the way that worked. I uh, – so – what is your uh, big take back on what to expect out of improv? I mean, there, there are plenty of people who get into improv now and they have heard about the famous names, the Jill Bernards, the, uh, the Zach Wards, and all, all the big names that are thrown about, uh, Ben Rameka, whoever. Uh, lots, of, lots of people are seeing them and saying, oh, they're, they're doing a lot. Maybe I can have a career in improv. Um, what would you say to th- How would you advise them? That people? Are you, do you know people saying that? Well, <laughs> I, what, a- I, what I hear more is probably saying, hey, don't try to have a career in improv. But I, you know, I assume there must be people saying that if there are people who are saying, hey, don't try to have a career in improv. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if there aren't, though, if there were just naysayers but no sayers? <laughs> <laughs> it's always uh, this, it always comes across as a, uh, hey, you know, do improv, but. People, um, yeah, people ask me, the, the version of that question, I guess, that is the smaller version of what you're saying is, People ask me, how do you get to be a festival teacher? Mm. Because that seems like the next category. First, you teach at the schools in your town, and then you start being able to teach at festivals. And there's a funny thing about being a festival teacher. All you have to do is teach at one festival, and then you're a festival teacher. (laughs) Resume needs one bullet point, and everything unfolds from there. So if you can get one festival to have faith in you, uh, it can all come from there, and it might be a, a smaller festival near you. Um, that you, you know, if there's a a, a, a small festival in a, in a, a a city near you, that's a way to get a start. Or there are festivals that take applications for teachers. Not a lot of them, 
Um, but some of them are a good place to start. I've always recommended uh, uh, the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival as a good first festival because mm-hmm. they they do so much for the performers, but also uh, they they hire a lot of teachers. So sometimes it's they're always really great teachers, but they're not necessarily the people whose names are at all of the festivals. All you need is for one festival to take a chance on you. And then even better than festivals is if you can get one theater in another city to take a chance on you. Um, Cause more lucrative than going to festivals is, for example, if I can go to Toronto just for a weekend and a festival, a theater there will have faith in me and put up an intensive or a bunch of individual, individual classes and yeah, the first time you do that, you probably have to sleep on someone's couch and pay your own airfare, but you'll get a couple bucks. And then every year you just ask for a little more money. And then <laughs> and then some years you ask for too much money and they say, no, thank you. And that's fine too. Um, yeah, it just grow. It's a very slow growing process, but all you need is one festival to start with or one city to start with. And then people talk to each other. Most of the festivals I've gotten in my life have been some other festival recommended me or hmm. one of their company members went to, saw me at another festival and went back to their home festival and said, hey, I was at this other festival. I took a workshop with Dill. It was great. We should bring her to our festival. And that's how it happens. Most of the emails I get are, hey, I just heard about you from so-and-so at this other festival. Yeah. Or, and each other, right? Like, uh, I've gotten Joe Bill into festivals, and Joe Bill's gotten me into festivals. So it's, <laughs> you know, we, we, you recommend the people you think are good, and then it kind of spreads around. Yeah, well, we loved having you at our uh, first festival here, the first time we did a festival. You were fantastic. Yay, great. Yeah. It's a, it is such a testimonial, too, I can give for NCCAF, the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival, because that one is, is another one where there are a lot of great teachers, and you're meeting a lot of great people and getting to see them perform and just hang out with, with them as well. Yeah. It's super fun. Uh, so if you could go back and speak to uh, Jill when she started comedy sports, <laughs> what would you tell her? Oh, man. Um, yeah. I, I really feel lucky because everything went well for me. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like there's stages of development you have to go through, right? Because like mm-hmm. when I start, the thing is, I started when I was 21. And at a, I feel like I was very much a teenager in mindset. Like I was 21, but I wasn't an adult in my brain. Mm-hmm. So when people ask me, how has improv changed you? Like, how, I would never be able to separate it out because my entire adult life has been improv. But the teenager I was, the young person I was, I needed a lot of audience approval. That, that's what I was in it for. I was in it for the audience to clap for me and laugh at me. And that's what I needed and wanted from them, from the show. And I don't even know when... The, the the desire to create art overtook the desire to receive um, public <laughs> public approval. <laughs> I think I might have been thirty. I think it might have taken nine years to settle down and 
and be in improv for something other than the approval of a room full of strangers. Um, yeah, I, what would I tell myself? Uh, oh, I would tell myself, hey, dummy, you're an introvert. You don't have to go to every party and, yeah, you don't have to. <laughs> you're an introvert. You don't have to be the life of the party offstage just because you're crazy on stage. I think that would have been helpful information that would have solved a lot of problems. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely see that as being good advice for so many improvisers that I've met. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, what advice would I give beginning improvisers? Um, just be good to each other, mainly, is the problem. Because sometimes we get in and we're, we're so worried about ourselves that we're not looking at everybody else and taking care of them in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, we talk over them, we bulldoze them, we take them for granted, we make them the butt of jokes. At least I did. And I think it's because I was self-focused, not and not partner focused, even though your teachers say, you know, make your partner look good. Mm -hmm. That didn't really mean anything to me. I didn't get the jar. I didn't decode the jargon until later. So I think that the, I think the way I train people now that's different than the way I used to train people is to, uh, to be more considerate of each other and make sure everyone is having a good time and not just me. Mm. Oh, that's really crucial information. I can think of a lot of times where I was on stage doing a scene with a couple few other people and, uh, oh, I, that line I just said didn't get a laugh. Oh, I hope I'm not messing this show up and blah, blah, blah. Hey. But I should have been thinking, uh, let me make sure that the people I'm in the scene with are having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I. So one of the things I'm amazed at is when I see really strong improvisers um, I always think there's no way they were ever not that good <laughs> uh, yeah I thought that too and then my friend Nate is younger than I am and he said oh yeah I used to come see you play comedy sports when I was in high school you were not good <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm like damn I thought I was I can't even imagine that. <laughs> I can't either, because how would you perceive it from the inside, you know? I know some people who are aware they were bad. Um, I know ways in which I was bad. Like, I was really a ham. I was really <laughs> joking all the time. <laughs> what was your question, though? I cut you off. Oh, well, uh, I mean, <laughs> that that sends me on a, a good uh, a, a tangent here, because that is the interesting thing about any sort of performance art as the performer you are having one kind of experience you either enjoy how you are performing or not the audience experience is completely different yeah yeah and that's and whether you're playing a, an instrument or you know whatever it's the experience for the artist is doing it right right my boyfriend likes performing improv a lot more than he likes watching it. He does not like watching improv, but right. he loves performing it. And it's like, you jerk. We all have to watch your shows, but you're not going to watch anybody else. <laughs> well, I Just wonder, some... is that a thing like like uh, like playing like watching someone play video games versus playing video games? Probably. <laughs> 
Probably. And now you say it, I like both of those things. I like watching people play video games. (laughs) You know, I have some friends who are like, oh, I hate playing video games. I just like to watch people play. Really? Wow. Yeah, just a couple of friends. But I had a hard time watching someone play video games because I'd be like, oh, you missed this thing. Why don't you go back and do this thing? Right. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the thing, so... Obviously, uh, improv as a skill, it's it's something you get better at when you practice it, right? You get good because you kept practicing it. But the thing I've experienced uh, often in shows is that uh, no matter how much I've practiced, I can still revert back to performing like a beginner or uh, making just rookie mistakes. It's like Bush League mistakes. <laughs> uh, how does... Uh, I don't see you making these Bush League mistakes that I make whenever I see you perform. Oh, yeah, I do. Um, Really? Yeah, I do. Um, But to me there, well, most of my mistakes you wouldn't see if you'd only see me do solo improv. Mm -hmm. Because solo improv, your mistakes are your strengths. So when when you craft a solo improv piece, what you're doing is making everything that you're bad at into something that's good <laughs> for the nature of the piece. So you don't see errors because they're the strengths. Um, but in group improv, um, in group improv, I still make the same mistakes I made year one. And what I tell people about that is you have to laugh at them. They have to be, they have to be like an old friend, right? Like whenever I, whenever I talk over someone in a scene, I just laugh because it's like, ah, ah, my old friend talking over your scene partner. How have you been, dear old pal? <laughs> and uh, I feel that the other, the other year, I uh, year maybe it was a year ago already, but it was so striking. I missed a tag out. Somebody tagged me out, and I was like, what do you want? Like, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> like, what did you just miss a tag out? Edit twenty years later. Um, uh, yeah, we are going to still make the same mistakes. And I know everybody, I know, I haven't really talked to advanced improvisers about this, but I bet you they would say the same thing, that you still make the same mistakes. And it's just that your worst show is so much better now. Your worst show is now as good as your, as your old best show. So you don't really see it. And it's because you have that strength now. Yeah. The extra things. More about, it's something about being at peace with judgment. Mm. You can't, you can't judge yourself too harshly. Um, uh, I learned really something beautiful in Spanish that I noticed the other day is that um, the words uh, juzgar, which is to judge, and jugar, which is to play. They're only one letter different. There's just a Z. And I love that they're so close because you cannot play if you are in judgment. So the sooner you can improvise without judgment, the better. But of course there are these moments of rigidity where we're in judgment. And the sooner we can find them funny and laugh them off, I think. For me, that's when I'm happiest and most comfortable. Of course I'm going to be in judgment, but... Can I laugh it off and find it funny instead of settling into it? Mm. Can I know that I'm wrong in that moment instead of thinking that I'm right? 
That reminds me of something I read um, Stephen Colbert say in an interview not too long ago. I think it was right before his show launched. Um, Vanity Fair, somebody did an interview with him. It was a great piece. And he said in that that one of the things he learned starting out in Second City was that someone there would say, learn to love the bomb. That makes sense. Yeah. To just get used to it not going well on stage and loving those moments and looking at it the way you did of saying, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah. I, I like that. That's very insightful. And I imagine there's a certain level of focus that you have to have to uh, to be able to pick up on all those things in a show. It's a weird kind of focus because for me it's about holding things lightly instead of tightly. Um, I think of it like catching a firefly in the backyard. You have to hold it in your hands softly. Or um, when you hold the reins of a horse, you don't grip them. They, they rest on your hand. Um, you, can't, you can't hold it too tightly. Uh, I think that's when we're uh, improv is, is too precious and too stiff. So yeah, it's it's about focus, but it's it's a gentle focus. It's a soft focus uh, where you're let you're giving it space to live and breathe. Hmm. I've got a show tonight, so I'm glad I'm hearing this now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, lightly. But T.J. Jagodowski says this: effort is ugly. So when people are trying really hard, it's it's ugly. It's not enjoyable. And I think the pheromones are off and we cannot enjoy the show. So uh, there's this Taoist concept of Wu Wei or effortless effort. And it's a little bit like that. Like, can you can you without effort um, um, make have a show without trying too hard, without pushing things? That's such a hard balance that I'm trying to find. It super is. I'm because I mean I'm certainly not. I'm not trying to push people or myself to have a Kobe Bryant laser sharp focus. <laughs> uh, I I just want to. I want to. I want it to mean something. I want to put effort into it. There. I. But I. You know, I've been thinking about like. As long as you've prepared as much as you can, then you should be happy with your preparation and know that the show is already a success. Mm. For example, I used to get really frustrated at festival shows where they throw you together and you have to do a show with these people that you don't know very well and at most you've had an hour or two of rehearsal. And I was always very frustrated. Like, why are you asking me to do this show that's unprepared? Um... And then I realized, you know what? If we wanted a different show, we would have prepared differently. So we are going to have the show that we prepared for. And as a result, it will be a success. And I feel much calmer now. Mm. Whereas I just spent a month in Colombia teaching. And I prepared really hard. Like I spent hours and hours getting ready for this workshop series and as a result, I was really well prepared and it went really well. And I had that level of control over what happened. And it and it came out well because I had prepared well. So there's nothing, I don't think there's anything you can do once you're on stage. As long as you've prepared the amount that you've prepared, you've got, you've got all your tools set, right? Mm-hmm. When you've got your, you know, you built your car, you're on the racetrack, you, you hired the best pit crew, 
And now it's just going to go. You're just going to drive. You can't do anything else now. You already built the car. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like all that. I'm letting it sink in. <laughs> it's so true. Effort is ugly. Yeah. Every time. I mean, I, oh, that's, that speaks a lot of volumes to me right now. Uh, <laughs> so what is your philosophy on the benefits of improv? I've heard you talk a little bit about this. Could you expound <laughs> on that? The benefits of improv, um, for me, everybody talks about the central philosophy of Yes And and how it changed their life. And I, I don't think we can say enough about it, like how agreeing to be positive and using agreement can make things go much more smoothly in your life. Mm. And there's all kinds of great examples that I use if we're doing a corporate workshop and I have to validate myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are all kinds of great examples of how Yes And can get things done and make things smoother. But I just think it makes the world a nicer place to live. And to take a moment to agree with people. I've had the nicest conversations with people just because I, I went ahead and... and, and agreed to have a conversation with them, just somebody on the street or somebody on a bus. And I've been to all kinds of cool places just because I've said yes to to ideas that were proposed to me um, and done things I, I don't think I would have done uh, just because I took the time to, to say yes to things. And um, also even just smaller tools like the tool of status Learning about status helped me understand how we as animals work through the world and having even that tiny tool to teach me what games people are playing with me subconsciously has been an invaluable mm. tool. Right. That's just two ways, man. I'm sure there's a million. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I know from uh, you having been here and experiencing uh, you teach, uh, I, you infuse a lot of that positivity to uh, in in your philosophy philosophy into your teaching. Um, how do you inspire students who maybe are just trying out improv and they aren't entertainers or they're they don't have theatrical aspirations? They're just saying, oh, you know, I don't know, I just decided to come. How do you get them to, to think that deeply? <laughs> or or understand that deeply. My job. That's not my job. Either it'll bite them or it won't. <laughs> um, I speak to everyone as if they are going to come out the other end a professional improviser. That's just how I speak to people. I how I speak. I treat everyone like an artist. I don't have energy for anything else. Hmm. Um, and so as a result, people either respond to that or they stop coming to class. And both to, both of those to me are valid responses. I I don't expect a hundred percent retention in our classes. I know some people are going to drop out because it's not for them, and that's fine. It would be weird if it was truly for everybody. I think, but people who are on the fence, I think the way I inspire them is just to treat their work as valid and to treat them as artists. And people step up to what you ask them to do. In a way, it's analogous to uh, if you ever, uh, if you're talking to a child, but you speak to them on a peer-to-peer -peer level, they just love it and they rise up. If you talk to a four-year-old or a five-year-old like a peer, for them, that's a neat moment. And you can see their, their spine straighten. And I love that. 
And we do that for improvisers, too. I just speak to them, mm-hmm. and I treat their work with the integrity that I would treat any artist's work. And they step up to it, or they or they don't. So, you're not worried about scaring people off from being so, you know, like thinking you're being too artsy-fartsy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There's a lot of improv schools in my town, too, which is a great thing. And they're actually, the Brave New Workshop is a wonderful institution, and they just switched over their program so that all of their classes are for improv for every day. And they are training people just to use improv in their everyday life and, and maybe do some performance, but that's not the goal. And so I love that there are all kinds of classes. If there's somebody who doesn't want to be a performer, they can certainly take classes there and they'll be really high quality classes. But if you come to HUGE and you study with me, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to treat you like a, like an improviser and I will treat you kindly. I'm not going to, you know, it's not like being treated like an improviser means I'm going to break you down or something. Uh, That's no, it just means I'm going to treat your work with respect and I understand, one of the things I've noticed is uh, when people come to class on the first day of their first class, we're not all at the same place. We're not all at the same starting line. Some people have had experiences in life that set them forward, like maybe they have an acting background or they're naturally uh, accepting, so they are closer to being an improviser, as opposed to some people life has set them back in a way. So when they are at the first day of improv class, they're really three or four steps back. And I acknowledge that and I notice that. And so everyone, I I know that we're starting from different places and I'll give you the license you need uh, to come uh, as far, as far forward as you, as you can. It's not always A to Z. Sometimes it's A to A and a half and that's enough progress. Um, but it's never by treating people. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know that if you uh, like. Um, I, I don't feel like I have a responsibility to light anyone's candle. I just have a light, and it's near your candle, and probably your candle will get lit. You know, <laughs> but that's your job. Right. Uh, yeah, I share my energy. And if and if people if, if it catches with people, that's great. If they're they're not interested, I can't really do it. Um, I can't really do it for them. I can't inspire other people. It has to come from from inside them. It can't come from external sources. You've opened my eyes to something in saying all of this because it's made me realize that. Uh, my approach to coaching the team I coach or in the future if I'm teaching that my approach is if they don't then I'm a failure as a teacher but that's not true yeah it's totally okay if they say you know what this isn't for me or like oh maybe there's a different coach or a different style that would be better for us yeah it's not you yeah it can totally not be for them yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think that's really helpful. All, all that you're saying, because I, I do want to uh, get into a point where I'm uh, teaching, and I know how just flat out nerdy and 
artsy fartsy <laughs> I could sound, and I don't want to scare away some one ers Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's good to show them that they're part of something grand. Most people are inspired by that, by the fact that hey, this is something cool. I mean, what's funny about improv classes is no matter how well you write the description, there will be a couple of people on the first night who think it's a stand-up class, who think we're going to make jokes. And those people are just in the wrong room. And I tell them where they can take stand-up classes and they're happier, <laughs> right? Like, oh, my friend Stevie Ray teaches excellent stand-up classes. You should go there. That always sounds mean, like, go away. But <laughs> I never mean it that way. No, um, I don't think so either. But, um... Yeah, we're not always in the right room, and it's not always the right time. Uh, maybe they want to talk to you later. Like Mick Napier at The Annoyance, he never teaches level one. He teaches level five or level four. I think just level five. You don't want him for level one. Level one is a special gift. There are people who have the gift for not scaring people away <laughs> um, who, or who have the gift. Because the root of education is educe. Uh, and the word "adduce" means to draw out that which is latent. So it means there's something in them that you have to draw out. So if it's not there, it's not there. But if it is there, there are people who are really gifted at drawing it out. Uh, and there are other people who, yeah, my friend Michael is terrifying. He can't, When he teaches a 101, they come out like soldiers. <laughs> they come out, yeah, let's do it from. Because they've, they've gone through this battle together. <laughs> um, there's other people it's a much gentler process <laughs> so there are a couple of things and uh, a couple of things I'd, they're just jumping out at me right now that I'd like to pick your brain about some more one is um, how are, you're, you're everyone I've met and I including myself have all been like Jill Bernard is the sweetest you also tell it like it is and it, you don't come off mean uh, in doing that at all. How do you cultivate in this day and age where it seems like people are looking for triggers to say, hey, that's offensive. Uh, how do you cultivate that warmness but also being honest? Is it because you're coming from a heart of let's just share love? Um, there are a couple tricks to it. This is something else I learned from McNapier. Mick, when Mick has a hard improv note to give you, he says, um, he says, I'm worried for you because, and then he gives the note, so that it's his problem. If you can make it your problem and, and not the student's problem, that's an easy way to do it. Um, I, I hope it's people know that I already know that I love them. And so anything I'm saying is, is, is a side note. This, this is a funny thing that's happened to me in my improv teaching within the last two or three years where I no longer care what my students are doing wrong. I only care what they're doing right. Like, I only care about the good things I see in them, and I want to talk about those things and draw those things out, and hopefully the other things will fall away that are less desirable. So if there's something I need to talk about that's negative, it feels like a minor tweak to me. It feels like just a slight adjustment as opposed to a big deal. Because most of the time it is, it's something like, hey, your volume isn't loud enough or 
or hey, you're shutting down your partner a lot. We can treat that as something easily adjustable uh, as opposed to a big deal. Hmm. And, and that's how I feel about it right now. I don't know. I've offended people. I've made people mad. Um, I've gotten better at, uh, at not just being snappish and saying something off the cuff. Um, I've gotten a lot better about it. I hope I have. People can check in. <laughs> the comment section will say if I have gotten better uh, in real life at, at being nicer to people. Um, in one of my earliest improv classes, I gave someone a note that was too harsh. And I saw the light go out in his eyes. His love of improv died. And he kept, he finished the class. There were a few more weeks left and he finished the class, but he never came back. And as far as I know, that guy doesn't do improv. And I saw the moment where I snapped out that light. And I haven't really talked to other improv teachers about this, but I bet you people have had parallel experiences. And you're like, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> I'm not going to shut out the light in somebody's eyes again. So we try really hard um, just to make sure they know that it's not a personal note. It's not because I don't like you. And that it's just a small thing that we can fix. That's what I hope it is. And also that if we can laugh about it, you know, if it can already be funny. Also, anytime it's a problem, I myself have had an improv. I love that too. Because I can say, ah, I've struggled with this very same thing. You and I are in the same boat. We can talk about it as people in the same boat. I like that. I like that too. Some ways. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to uh, ask about was uh, you've you've done amazing things in, in short form improv and as well in long form improv. Uh, and one, uh, you're you're always funny uh, when you do it. I feel like for me, and I'm probably just wrong, but. <laughs> So bear with me, but uh, I feel like uh, with long form improv, there's so much opportunity to see these beautiful, heartfelt scenes that are funny uh, or shows that are funny. And when I do short form improv, I feel like, oh, I've got to bring them the laughs, uh, which is probably wrong, as I said. Um, <laughs> how do you do that uh, beautiful improv all the time? Like, how do you switch gears? Because you have to be so much faster with something like comedy sports. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just faster. <laughs> it's just the same thing faster. Um, we're just doing it. We're just doing it faster. <laughs> um, for me, uh, it's the way you have a good TV show and a good movie. Of course, a TV show is faster. It's only 30 minutes long. But a really good TV show that's really clipping um, can move you just as much as... Mm -hmm. Not every TV show has the ability to move you as much as a movie, but many of them do. Um, I think in short form, for me, um, once you... Like we've been talking about this around my house about there's a lot of obligations to short form. You have to be able to pull off the mechanics of short form. Um, and the smoother you can be with that, the more room there is to play. I've been thinking about uh, 
like improv is a a fish to bones analogy. You know, when you when you order a piece of fish, there's an ideal number of bones in that fish. And the bones are the things that hold it together. So when you're doing improv, a long form or a short form has bones that hold it together. You just have to make sure you have enough fish too, right? Like it's just the right amount of, you can't have only bones. You need fish on those bones. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just the easier the mechanics get for you, the less you have to focus on them. It's never about being funny. It, it, it just is funny, right? You just are funny. Human, like you just are. You don't have to worry about it. And the less you worry about it, the easier it is. Yeah, I find that I, I mean, not that I should be uh, making notes of when I get more laughs, but I just feel like shows are better overall when I'm not worrying and just yeah. being. Everything is better when you're not worrying. Worrying is the most useless human response in the world. <laughs> yeah, it does absolutely nothing. Good. Gives you ulcers, headaches, your hair falls out. Worry has no value. Yeah, true that, as they say. <laughs> uh, so how did you... Uh, you did a solo show. It's, a, it's an award-winning solo show, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it, um, how did you develop this solo show? Um, when I first did it... I basically took the game musical day in the life that I knew from comedy sports and used that as the structure. Hmm. And then it's just grown from there. Um, in terms of developing it, I worked with Andy Enger in Chicago, who's kind of the, the master of solo improv. And, uh, I just practiced it a lot, you know, well not practiced it a lot, but, but toured it a lot. Um, I studied, there's music in it. So I studied singing, to get better at the singing parts of it. But when you put together a solo show, it's everything you love, so you're probably already ready to do it. Hmm. And in terms of structuring it, it might be really simple, you know? Um, mine is, uh, because I love history and I love characters, uh, and the kind of books I read when I was in my formative years were uh, science fiction, and romance novels. So, like, the combination of those is all the storylines. Um, and, yeah, I just kind of throw a bunch of ideas up in the air and tie them all together within the structure of just we know it's going to be a historical musical. That's, and that's a it, structure. Wow. <laughs> How long did it take you to come up with that? Um, yeah, I don't know. I woke up one morning and I thought... There should be a show called Drum Machine. And I lived on the same street as a music store, so I went in and I said, I would like to buy a drum machine. And they said, what kind? And I said, I have no idea what is a drum machine. So they showed me all the <laughs> And I bought one that was blue with pink light-up buttons because that's clearly for me. And uh, from there, yeah, it was just a combination of scenes and songs. Like coming up with it wasn't, wasn't very difficult at all. It's refined over time is mainly what's happened. Because with a solo piece, you try it, and the piece tells you what it wants to grow up to be. Like, you have an idea for it, you try out that idea, and it becomes really obvious what needs to happen next. The piece tells you. Um, for example, for years I, there was a piece on Drum Machine where I had an audience interaction song at the beginning. 
and I never really liked doing it, and it didn't fit with the rest of the show. And um, the first time I ever did the show, I didn't have very distinct characters, so I got confused. And that show taught me, oh, you better do a good job making distinct characters. And that made the show a lot easier. Wow, that's, that's great. Yeah, the people do. You've just been yes-anding yourself. Yeah, that's all it is. You do the show and any question you have. I love coaching solo improv because people will always say things like, could I have, maybe I own, could I have only one character? And the answer is always yes. Or could I wear a costume? Yeah, of course you can. It's your show. <laughs> um, yeah. I like that. Go from in the audience. Yeah, of course. Why not? It's your show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's uh, let's wind down here at the end of this episode and do what I like to do, which is try to create something together. Um, yeah. So... I don't know what to create. Should it be a idea for a solo show? Should it be? I'm really, I really would be interested in trying to develop what I would do if I was going to teach a one-on-one class. But yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. If you were, gonna, if if Jason was going to teach a one-on-one class, um, and you're designing the curriculum, yeah, this isn't a school giving you the curriculum. Um, do you already know your central, your personal central philosophy of improv? <laughs> uh, do you, uh, do you mean what I think the importance of it is? Yeah, uh, like, like what's the message you would get to students, or what's the thing? Yeah, what's what's hmm. the thing that, for example, the my main message for students at any level is that you are enough. You are right. sufficient. Do you have something? Oh, yeah, I guess what's the importance of improv would be a way to get the same answer. Well, so I have focused so much up to this point on I don't really need to push what I get out of improv on other people. Maybe that's something I should keep right. to myself. But you're making me change my opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> um Unless your task is to pull out what why each of us are here, that would be a really interesting class structure. Why yeah. each of us are in this room together. I think for me the big thing is inspiration. Yeah. The thing that always gets my heart pumping and my eyes a little watery is just when I think of how much all these different forms of art have inspired me since I was five. Yeah. And I would want, I would want every person that I taught to feel that inspiration. Wouldn't that be great? And like night two, we could each bring something that inspires us, and we would do improv based on that thing. Like I would bring a book, and you would bring your teddy bear. <laughs> I would each bring something, you know, uh, and we could do improv based on that. That would be great. Yeah. I, I've. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, um, uh, you know, how communication or how you can get quicker on your feet and like all that kind of stuff. But it's the inspiration that really sticks with me. Oh, what a cool class that would be. Like finding inspiration and using it different ways. Because that would be how you could get the how you could get the improv element in it. Like 
hey, that's a cool way. Let me introduce you to an improv game that we could use this as a source of inspiration for. Yeah, I like it. That'd be good. Uh, Ideally, everyone would leave it saying, I understand why I am a person. Yeah, what a cool idea. And it would solve, you know how like at Thanksgiving, a relative is always like, you're going to use that in your act? Like, or when you have a job at an office, they're like, oh, you're going to use us in your act. Yeah. I think it would show people much more how we use the world. Because improvise, it's not like the improvisers don't use the world. Uh, we do use the world, but it's more like this. Like a, a movie I enjoy inspires the texture of my scenes. Or um, we happen to be doing a scene about dogs. So in that scene, I have a dog that's like my old dog. You know? <laughs> that would be so cool. Oh, there it is. Yes! Jill Bernard, I wish I were more like you. I hope to be. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to <laughs> you, too. You're a good one. Yay. What a great talk. I thought it was an honest and earnest conversation. We worked a lot of uh, stuff into that chat, even a little Spanish lesson. Talking to Jill helped remind me of why I want to do what I want to do in improv. Plus, it had a lot of good lessons and good reminders. I'll probably have to listen to it a couple of times for it all to sink in. She is such a great teacher and really means what she says. I love that about her. We need more people like that. Honest, well-meaning people who can just be straightforward, only trying to help you love yourself a little better. Jill has a great book for anyone starting out in improv. It's one of the top three books I think you should read if you're starting out. It's called Jill Bernard's Small Cute Book of Improv. You can buy it at jillbernard.blogspot.com. Keep up with Jill online. You can like her Facebook page and follow her on Twitter at JillyB72, JillyBEE72. Today's episode was sponsored in part by the early support of wonderful people like Miley White, Angela Barber, and Joe Johnson. Thank you all so much for your support. If anyone else would like to support, you can at thereitispod.com. May you all have their-itis. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes. You can follow the podcast at There It Is Pod. There you have it, folks. Another episode of There It Is. In next week's episode, I have last week tonight writer and stand up comedian Josh Gondelman. It's a great one. He is super nice. Two very kind people back to back. I love it. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.